If ever there's been a time when people need to understand what it means to be made in the image of God, that time is now. Because only this understanding really gives us a sense of dignity. You know, what makes humanity different from anything else in terms of the created order? It's the fact that we, as people, have been uniquely created in the image of God. And that sets humanity apart from every other part of the created order. And so where there's been that Judeo-Christian understanding of the image of God, you've seen you know, human flourishing as a result of that. And so the enemy fights hard against that doctrine. And he would love nothing more than for us to think that we're nothing more than just the random you know, result of chance and evolutionary process and that kind of thing. So as to really sever us from our sense of purpose. But doesn't it do your heart a great deal of good to know that you have been purposefully created by Almighty God in His image for a privilege of relationship? And so that's what we're really looking at on Wednesday nights for just a few weeks. And I do want to deal with some topics that are really raging in our culture from a biblical standpoint. How do we address certain topics? How should we understand certain ideas Uh, that we see sort of being espoused in our culture today, how do we view all of that through the lens of a Christian worldview? And so there's a sense in which a little bit of what we're doing on Wednesday nights is what you could call apologetics, maybe cultural apologetics, where we're trying to engage some of these ideas uh, from the culture around us. Because let's just be honest, all of us at some point are, are dealing with having a conversation with someone in our families or someone we work with who may be on the opposite end of some of these arguments such as gender, uh, sexuality, uh, you may have children, even grandchildren, you know, that you've had conversations with who perhaps have bought into so many of the ideas that are now popularized in our culture today and you say, okay, well, pastor, how can we as, as evangelical, Bible-believing Christians, how can we engage people? Because a lot of these topics are just hot-button issues, you know, that really are emotionally charged issues. But, you know, the Scripture says that we're to speak the truth in love. And so that's what I hope to be able to help you with over just a few weeks. And so understanding what's meant by this phrase, imago Dei, I told you last week that's sort of a, just a fancy Latin expression for image of God. And so throughout church history, when, you know, imago Dei, whatever, whatever, when that, is, that word or that phrase has been used, it's just simply referring to the truth that man has been created uniquely in the image of God. Okay, but what exactly does that mean? How should we understand that? And so last week, I really began by asking just the basic question, um, what does it mean to be human? And at first glance, you would think, well, that's a very obvious question, but it's one that people are really grappling with in our own time. What does it mean to be human? And most people, at one time or another, they really grapple with the enigma of their own existence in the world. Why am I here? You know, why am I the way that I am? Uh, who am I, how should I live my life, those kinds of questions really get at this issue, what does it mean to be human? What's the purpose behind our existence? 
And when you think about it, human beings are capable of great acts of love and sacrifice, selflessness. You think about how human beings can create wonderful works of art. They can build cities, even entire civilizations. While at the same time, isn't it also true that humanity is capable of committing great atrocities? Such as we've seen played out just in the last couple of weeks. You know that there's this battle in your own heart and in your own life where you're capable of sacrifice and love while at the same time you know that you're also capable of committing great sin and you sense your own weakness and frailty. And so all of that aside, you look at creation itself, we, we share certain biological characteristics with the created world around us. You know, think about the animal world. Animals need air to breathe, well, so also do we. Uh, they need food to eat, well, so do we. Our lives are relatively short when you consider it. I mean, if you, even if you live to be 100 years old, that's 100 trips around the sun, which compared to Eternity is not even really a, 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 a bleep on the radar. Uh, that's why James says that your life, it's like a vapor, a mist. You're a little mist, you know, that just is here but vanishes uh, in no time. And so that's why it's really important that we understand God's design for humanity and his ultimate intention behind creating man and woman uniquely in his own image. Now, I've had you turn last week to Genesis chapter 1. I want you to turn back there uh, in the very first chapter of the Bible where we look at verses 26, 27, and 28. But also want you to uh, maybe put your finger at Psalm 8 tonight. Um, so just to read the text, Genesis 1, 26, after having created everything else, in, in the created order. The pinnacle or the high watermark of God's creating or creative activity, according to the Genesis account, is that he creates man and woman, but at least three times in these verses, man and woman are said to be created in the image of God. And so that's something that's very different from anything else that God has made. Uh, so you look at verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That's basically just meaning the same thing. At times, theologians have tried to distinguish between what does it mean to be made in God's image versus being made after God's likeness. Well, there's really no distinction there. It's expressing the same idea, the same truth, that God has created man in a particular way. And I say man and I'm referring to all of us folks, men and women, humanity. God's created mankind specifically in his own image. Which is saying something about who we are and, and what, our, what our, pump, our purpose is. And so there's, there's a relational implication there behind this. There's a functional implication there behind this truth. Uh, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. 
male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so God has created mankind in his own image and now he's given man dominion over all of the works of his hands so that now man is intended to be God's representative God's given him dominion. He's given him this, this capacity to rule and exercise dominion, sort of as a vice regent who's ruling over the created order with God. He's still subject to God. He's still accountable to God, but he's to reflect God and to represent God in a way that no other part of creation can do so. And so at the end of the narrative there in verse 31, God looks at everything that's made, And now this crowning point of creation, you have man made in the image of God. God looks at that and says, it's very good. And so here you have divine design. And this wonderful truth that life is not just incidental. Uh, It's not simply the product of some evolutionary process and that kind of thing. But God is very specific in this creation account. And the high watermark of creation, it's... Man and woman, made in the image of God, exercising dominion over God's created order, all to the glory of God. And that's his intention, as far as humanity is concerned. Okay? So the fact of the matter is, we only understand who we are when we understand who God is and what he says about us. So the proper study of mankind, it's not so much man as much as it is God. Because we're only able to understand who we are in the light of what God has revealed concerning himself. And so you flip over to Psalm 8 then and look at what the psalmist writes about this very thing. I love Psalm 8 and what an expression of worship it is as the psalmist himself is considering, contemplating this wonderful truth that man has been created uniquely in the image of God, begins with this expression of worship, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now look at this, verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So the psalmist is saying, when I consider just the vastness of space and I consider all of those celestial bodies that that fill the sky and all those twinkling little lights, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. When I consider all of that, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I was reading this week, you know there's an estimated 200 billion stars 
just in the Milky Way galaxy alone. And there's an estimated 100 billion galaxies in the universe, many of which are bigger than the Milky Way galaxy. And so what I read this week that I thought was really interesting was this, this thought. If a computer were observing 10 million of those stars per second, it would still take 63 million years to count them all. Now just chew on that for just a minute. And as, as amazing as that sounds, the psalmist simply says, all of that's merely the, the work of God's fingers. I think about my kids, you know, when they would come home from vacation Bible school or preschool, they would come home with little finger paint drawings, you know. And, and being a proud dad, we always showcased all of our artwork on our refrigerator. We still do. You know, and so we're proud. But that's, that's my children, that's their finger finger paint. And that's kind of the idea that the psalmist has in mind when he's referring to the created universe, the stars. This is merely the, this is just the finger painting of God. But if you really want something to think about, think about what it means that you and I have been made in the image of God. And, and, and what does that involve? You know, elements of, of, of rationality, that we're rational creatures. Or relationship, we're, we're relational creatures. Rulership, we've been created to exercise dominion over the works of God's hands. All of that's involved in this concept of the Imago Dei, what it means to be made in the image of God. And so this then gives humanity a sense of dignity. Now obviously we know that there's plenty wrong in the world and all of that comes into view once you understand Genesis chapter 3 and what sin has done as God's creation has been marred and affected by the fall so that the image of God it's not something that's been lost because man and woman is still very much made in the image of God but the image of God in you and me has been deeply affected by sin our humanity has been deeply affected by sin and so once you understand the fall you then understand the storyline of scripture itself that God has done something in Christ so that man and woman can be restored to right relationship with God and the goal of your salvation according to what the New Testament teaches is that you and I be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God, according to what the writers of the New Testament say. So every time you see this phrase, the image of God, as it refers to, to you and me, it, it's always uh, referred to in terms of sort of a prepositional phrase. We have been created in the image of God. Not that you and I are the image of God perfectly, because we know that's not the case. But you want to know who is? Jesus Christ. And so God's goal in your salvation is to conform you more and more into that image. What does God have in mind for humanity? What should that look? It's Jesus. You think about the character of Jesus. You think about who Jesus is. God's goal in your salvation is to conform you to the image of his own son. 
And so that's going to be this ongoing work in my life now as a believer. Sanctification. God's molding me, shaping me. Using all kinds of circumstances. Using his word. He's using you as the church in my life. The happenings of my life. And the Holy Spirit is conforming me more and more into the image of Christ. So that one day, this wonderful truth of glorification means that I'm going to be with him in eternity. Conformed perfectly to the image that he has in mind. Now, isn't that just a wonderful thought? And doesn't that just give you a sense of purpose and doesn't it just fill your heart and your soul with joy when you think about your life? Now listen, you may feel like a total failure. Maybe you've dropped the ball at some point in your life and you feel like, man, there are no more chances for me. You know, it's, it's gone. No, listen, God has a goal in mind for you in Jesus Christ and it's to conform you to the image of his own son. And, and God's going to do that with success. And you can bank on it. So that's why we as Christians have got such a wonderful story to tell the world around us where people are just desperately searching for some type of meaning. Unfortunately, sin has left them completely in the dark. And so that they're wrestling in the dark trying to find some sense of meaning. And so that's why people latch on to all kinds of things such as, such as issues related to sexuality and issues related to gender and all such as that. It's, it's, it's a deep identity issue. And so there's this debate raging in the culture. Are the cosmos that we live in, are they well-ordered and by design? Or are you and I just free to pick and choose and craft our own identity however we so choose? Because how you answer that question really, really determines, you know, your worldview determines how you answer that question. Because if I really believe that I've been made uniquely in the image of God, that means that I'm accountable to him. That means he has a purpose in mind for my life. My life, is, I'm not my own. I've been bought at a price. Therefore, I'm to glorify God in my body and in my spirit. Which means he's the one who's written the book. He's the one who has, as the creator, he's come up with the design. My responsibility is to submit to the creator's intentions. And not try to usurp the creator's role. Okay, so coming back to this issue then, we only understand who we are when we understand who God is and what he says about us. Now, when society exchanges that truth, all that society is left with at that point are lies. Lies. Satan's a deceiver. He wants to deceive people as to uh, their ultimate purpose, where they come from, where they're headed, and so we're not ignorant of his designs, but we're very, very much aware as Christian men and women. All right, so again, there's probably no doctrine more urgent for us to study now than this doctrine of humanity, because that's really what this is. It's the doctrine of humanity. What does the Bible actually have to say concerning this issue of the Imago Dei being made in the image of God? All right, and why should we study this to begin with? Well, let me tell you. Human beings are worthy of attention, first and foremost, because God is worthy of, of attention. And, and he's chosen to involve himself with human beings who are made in his image. And this is what the psalmist is so amazed by, 
The fact that the creator himself, who's created all of this above me, he's intimately involved in the details of my life. All right, so I gave you a working definition of that question. What is a human being? What does it mean to be human? And so that working definition is very simple. A human being is a man or a woman personally made by God in the image of God, all for the glory of God. That's a simple definition, but let me tell you, it is absolutely loaded with meaning. So much so that we sort of, we're trying to break this definition down into four parts. And we began last week looking at really the first and the second part. The first part, uh, a human being is distinctively created man or woman. And so this issue of gender then is addressed right out of the gate with this biblical understanding of what it means to be human. Because again, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, 28 is very clear. God's intention for those made in his image, he created male and female. So this issue of gender then is, is something that's fixed. It's something that's determined. It's my identity. It's not something that I've achieved. It's something I've received. And that's the Christian understanding. That's the biblical understanding. So a human being is distinctively created man or woman. Now what does that mean? What are the implications of that? Well, I told you that as those who bear the image of God, men and women possess equal dignity before God and each other. Men are not more in the image of God than women and vice versa. There's, this, there's equal dignity. So that the truth of this, this doctrine of the Imago Dei, what it does is it elevates humanity and the dignity of humanity so much so that no matter who you are, no matter your gender, whether you're male, whether you're female, no matter the fact of how you so choose to live your life, my understanding of the image of God in you as a man or a woman who's been created uniquely in the image of God, that demands that I treat you with respect. And so that rules out racism. Uh, that rules out uh, cruelty. You think about how this great doctrine uh, was so in, influential in, in you know, the, over, the, overflow of, uh, the overthrow of slavery, for example. William Wilberforce and, and so many after him. The abolitionist movement had an understanding of the Imago Dei. That no matter your ethnicity, you know, you're not less in the image of God than I am. And that's significant. Because it has profound implications as to how you and I relate to each other. That's why you and I ought to be mindful of the way that we seek to engage an unbelieving culture around us because even our very attitude, the way that we go about trying to engage people who are far from God, if, if we are crude in our language, if we are snide with our comments and we mock and we use slurs and we make fun and that kind of thing, folks, let me tell you what that does it greatly diminishes our evangelistic witness in the eyes of the world that we're trying to reach. You know, they're not our enemy, they're our mission field. People are our mission field. And so what is it that will lead me to be able to treat others with respect? How can I turn the other cheek? When someone does something, and Jesus says, you know, you need to turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Pray for those who mistreat you. 
You say, how in the world is that even possible? <laughs> well, but it's not given my fallen human nature because I, I tend to want to get even. You know, you come at me, I'm going to come back at you. That's, that's just human nature, fallen human nature. But this understanding of the image of God in man coupled with the indwelling Holy Spirit who now lives in you as a Christian man or a woman, God will give you the power and the wherewithal to treat others with respect even when they mistreat you. And this is something the world doesn't understand. It causes an unbelieving world to, 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 to take notice and to ask questions and then that gives us just a profound opportunity to explain the reason for the hope that's within us as Christ's disciples. And then something else that I mentioned there, as those who bear the image of God, men and women are uniquely distinguished by God in relationship to one another. All right, so, so male and female are equal, and yet there are very distinct roles that are assigned as far as Scripture is concerned in God's design of male and female. And we'll get into that a little bit later on, but, but not tonight. And so with the transgenderism issue, you think about this, and I'm going to deal with that at length next Wednesday night, but Christopher Yen in his book, Holy Sexuality, last week I sort of recommended some resources that if you, if you want to just sort of do a deep dive into some of these issues, you know, I want to make you aware of some resources that I think will help you as you seek to think through some of this in your own personal study and discipleship. But Christopher Yen... Uh, has written a book called Holy Sexuality. I told you last week, you know, he was saved out of a, um, a background. Uh, he uh, basically identified as a gay man in 1993. And he lived uh, in that lifestyle for a number of years before he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And so now he's a professor at Moody Bible Institute and has written a number of books, one of which is Holy Sexuality. But with reference to the transgenderism issue, he says that transgenderism is not exclusively a battle for what's male and female, but rather a battle for what is true and real. Christians cannot simply nod and smile politely in the face of damaging lies. And let's just be honest, it's a much greater issue than just the surface issues as far as NCAA sports. As important of an issue that that is... I mean, let's get to the real crux of the issue. We're talking about what's true and what's false. What's right versus what's wrong. And so you and I had better be able to articulate what God's good design is and and be willing to hold that forth and present that in such a way that it's radically different from where we've seen such a departure in secular culture. All right, so the second thing, the second part of that definition that we looked at, a human being is personally created by God. So again, our working definition, what does it mean to be human? A human being is a man or a woman, but a human being is personally made by God. Again, this issue, we're we're not random accidents. We're not here by coincidence. There is a very real design and intentionality behind your life. And you can't help but see this. Even even science is beginning to recognize just upon the basis of observation that the universe around us 
is, is structured in such a way where it's evident that there is some type of grand design behind it all. Even the molecular structure makes up your body and you think about atoms and all such as that. What is it that holds all of that together? It's the wisdom of God in Christ, men and women. And so that means that God is independent, but we are dependent. He exists in and of himself, and his existence does not depend upon you or me. He doesn't need me to exist, but I need him to exist. I'm completely dependent upon him. He's the one who's giving your heart rhythm right now. He's keeping it beating in your chest. Were he to stop, were he to stop giving you the very breath that you have to breathe, the oxygen that your, your lungs take in, Who's holding all of that together? Who's keeping all of that at work? Who's keeping all of the gravitational forces of the universe at work? Colossians 1.17 says that in him all things hold together. It all holds together in him. God is truly independent, but we're dependent. And so that's why you better be careful when you go at life independent of God and what he said. You may think you can get far, but I promise you, you won't get far. And then God is sovereign, but we are subordinate. He's in control. And, and, you know, he's our commanding officer. For that reason, he's authoritative, but we are accountable. We're accountable to him for everything we say, everything we think, everything we do, what we do with our bodies, how we shape our words. How we give expression and you know, vent our emotions. Do you know that you're accountable to God for all of that? Oh, Lord, forgive me when I think about it. Because how easy is it for us in our sinful condition to just quickly say something perhaps about someone or lash out at someone. And we're totally forgetful of the fact that that person is someone who's been created in the image of God. Therefore, to slander someone created in the image of God is to slander God himself. So how I love God then was going to show up and how I love my neighbor. Jesus said that's the two greatest commandments. Right? So this is, this is very, very important. All right, the third part of the definition. A human being is purposefully created in the image of God. A human being is a man or a woman who's been created by God, but specifically with purpose in the image of God. You say, okay, I hear you keep saying that image of God, but what does that really mean to say that we've been made in the image of God? Now, this is where we we really benefit by just camping out here for, for just a few moments because there are really three main things that being made in the image of God really means. Right, and I'll put all three of these in a sentence that's not there on your, 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 your note sheet. But you'll notice that there are three blanks. And so those three words that are underlined there will be the words that you put there uh, in your blanks. So being made in the image of God means that we as human beings resemble God in a way that enables us to relate to God and carry out our responsibility to represent God in this world. So the three key components of what it means to be made in the image of God 
really you could take those three words, resemble, relate, represent. Now, I don't want to bore you with all the details, but, you know, throughout church history, Bible teachers and scholars have sort of argued back and forth, and they've sort of latched on to one particular expression of, of what it means to be made in the image of God. They say, well, it's that it's man resembles God. And then some will come along and say, no, it's man relates to God. And someone else come along and says, no, it means that man represents God as his vice regent, ruling over the works of God's hands. When in reality, it's yes, <laughs> it's all the above. That's the full biblical understanding of what it means to be created in the image of God. And so let's just look at those uh, one by one for just a few minutes. The first word is that word resemble. To be made in the image of God means that humanity resembles God, not in every way, but in ways that are not true of other parts of the created order. All right, so put your thinking caps on and think about how this is true. All right, so first, we resemble God spiritually. All right, we alone, according to what the scripture teaches, we are spiritual beings with bodies. All right, secular culture wants you to believe that you're nothing more than a body. But you know that there is more to you, to your constitution as a human being, than simply your body, right? Uh, there's much more to you than just your body. The Bible teaches that you have been created with a spirit. So there is a material component to mankind, but there is an immaterial component to mankind. And so you've got multiple places in the Bible where you see this, but, but this is so true of humanity. It's not true of any other part of the animal kingdom. We've been created uniquely in God's image, which means we are spiritual beings. You have an impetus and an impulse to pray, don't you? <laughs> it's not true of anything else in the created order. I've got two cats, but I promise you, I've not seen my cats bow for prayer before they devour a cat treat. I've not seen that happen. Kind of reminds me of a story about a hunter who was uh, out in the woods, and he was on a bear hunt. And uh, he happened to just all of a sudden come across this huge grizzly bear that was just absolutely just staring at him. I mean, just saw him, and he just knew he was a goner. He couldn't get to his gun quick enough, and so he just prayed in that moment. The only thing that he knew to pray, he said, God, I pray that you make this a Christian bear, please. <laughs> and right then and there, that old bear just stopped, got down on its knees, folded its paws, and said, God, I thank you for this meal that you've prepared for me right now. <laughs> But see, you and I, we're created with spiritual capacity. You have a spirit. So we resemble God spiritually. We resemble God physically. That's not to say that he has a body, but we know 1 John, or John 4, 24 says that God is spirit. Jesus said God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. You know, the wonderful thing about the incarnation, Christmas, is that God took on flesh and became one of us. The second member of the Trinity, God the Son, took on flesh. 
And so you think about it, the, the scripture uses language that, that we would say is anthropomorphic language, which means it's using language that, that you and I can understand as people. For example, the Bible says that God sees. And you think about how your body physically enables you to see. God hears. And what does God do? Well, he's f- so formed your body in such a way, and your ear in such a way, and your ear canal in such a way, you can hear. God speaks. God's created us in such a way to be able to speak and form intelligent language. We've got senses of taste, touch, smell. All of that gives us this ability to be able to understand and discern and enjoy God's creation. Thank God for the smell of hot biscuits in the morning. God didn't have to create you with that capacity. He didn't have to create you with the taste buds that you have. But guess what? He did. So that you can bite into that hot buttery biscuit and slap some apple butter on it. And taste it and enjoy it. And so, you know, we resemble God spiritually. We resemble God physically. I would say something else. We resemble God intellectually. In other words, we have this innate ability to reason and to remember. We're able to communicate with clear language. We've got an awareness of the future. We don't know the details aside from what God himself has revealed, but we've got this awareness of the future. We've got a unique unique capacity to create. I think about the creativity just in this room alone. I think about Jonathan being able to get up here and play his guitar the way that he does. To be able to sing. Those that can write music. Those that can draw. Those that can paint. Those that you can work with your hands. Woodworking. It's amazing just the sheer talent and creativity that's represented in this room. Where does that come from? Are we to assume that all of that just is the product of chance? Or is it reflective of the fact that we've been created by this intelligent creator who is himself creative? When you think about the creative mind of God and the diversity that you see expressed throughout humanity and throughout the universe, and you think about the different land masses and continents and the variety that you see even in North America. You can go to the Rocky Mountains and it's beautiful. At the same time, you can go to the Outer Banks and it's beautiful, but it's a different kind of beauty that just represents the creative mind of the artist. And so we resemble God intellectually. We resemble Him emotionally. In terms of your emotions, our hearts grieve. We rejoice. Scripture uses the same kind of language and applies it to God. Think about how we resemble God morally. The Bible says in Romans chapter 2 that God has written his own law upon the human heart so that we have a sense of what's right versus what's wrong. Now, all of this has been affected by sin, mind you. But you still have this element as far as humanity is concerned. The law of God's been written upon your heart. Because those that sort of scoff at this notion of design, now listen, I just want to be very honest here. You look at how even within same-sex marriage, 
and the arguments behind same-sex marriage that even in their own behavior, in that same-sex marriage, someone assumes the more masculine role and someone assumes the more feminine role. You cannot escape design. You want to know why? Because the law of God has been written upon the human heart. And we suppress that truth in unrighteousness according to what Romans chapter 1 says. But folks, th- this, is, this is really profound when you think about it. So we resemble God. The second word, relate. We resemble God relationally. But that relate, that's, that's something that, you know, it's sort of in its own category. To be made in the image of God means that humanity has been uniquely created to experience relationship with God. God creates Adam. You get into Genesis chapter 2, and, you know, of all of the created order, God says there's one thing that's not good. And so Genesis chapter 2 is sort of a more detailed description of the creation of man and woman The one thing God says is not good is that the man should be alone because God has created him in his image, but he's created us in a relational capacity. I know some of us are more introverted than others. And some of you are extroverted. You get energy by being around people. Others, you're introverted. You sort of get energy by sort of being disconnected. We retreat into our books and with our cats and that kind of thing. But... The fact of the matter is, the world would be a lonely place if you were the only person in it. I mean, what happens in that kind of environment? I'll tell you what happens. You end up talking to a volleyball named Wilson. (laughs) (laughs) Got to relate to someone. But most important of all, we've been created to relate to God and to know God. Exodus 33, 11 talks about Moses. Uh, you know, God speaking to Moses face to face as with a friend. And Jesus says something along the same lines in John 15, verse 15. He reiterates that truth with his disciples that uh, you're my friends. The fact that God wants you as his friend. St. Augustine said it this way. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. That the heart will not find true rest and satisfaction until it finds its rest and its satisfaction and ultimate joy in a relationship with the Creator through the Lord Jesus. You want to know where meaning is found? You want to know where purpose is found? You want to know where real joy is found? It's found in relationship with God. That no matter the highs and lows of life, the thrills and the disappointments of life, man, thank God that I can know God as a friend and to know that he's for me and not against me. And then that third term, represent. To be made in the image of God means we resemble God, we relate to God, but humanity is responsible for representing God. And we've seen this already, again, Genesis chapter 1. There toward the end of the chapter, you've got what's been referred to traditionally as the Genesis Commission or the creation mandate. God creates man and woman, and he gives them this mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with image bearers who represent me, who will 
you know, exist to my glory and, 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 and rule and exercise dominion for my glory. And so that's our stewardship. We've been given dominion as stewardship. Not simply, and by the way, this has profound implications for how we respond and relate to the world around us. We're stewards of creation. That means we ought to take care of the created order. We rule and you know, exercise dominion, but that doesn't mean that we're careless and cruel. You know, you think about what that means as far as the treatment of animals. I'll be honest, those Sarah McLaughlin commercials that come on TV, you know, I just, they get on my nerves. But I hate to see those pictures of animals in cages and that kind of thing. You know why? Because I think there's part of the creation mandate that we're to steward creation well to the glory of God. That means we take care of animals. It means we take care of our environment. Not because of something the UN says, but because of something that God Himself says. This is my Father's world. And so I want to take care of it to the glory of God. I don't want to treat it like a dump. I don't want to mistreat other people because, again, I understand something. They've been made in the image of God, which means you have dignity and you ought to be treated with dignity and respect. And so that brings us to the last point of this definition, and I'll just finish with this tonight, okay? A human being is intentionally created for the glory of God. So there's our full definition. What does it mean to be human? A human being is male or female. A human being has been created by God. A human being has been created in the image of God. But now listen, a human being has been intentionally created for the glory of God. That's why you exist. All for the glory of God. It means you're to delight in Him. You find your ultimate joy and satisfaction in Him. Life is found in exalting God in all of His glory. And that's the picture that we see there at the end of Genesis chapter 1. That's why God could look at everything that's been created, especially the apex of creation. Here you have man and woman created in God's image for his glory, exercising dominion for his glory. And God looks at that and says, it's very good. That's the design God has in mind for creation itself. So that means that in whatever we do, in everything we do, whether you're eating whether you're drinking, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, the most mundane, basic details of life, whether you're sleeping, whether you're reading, whether you're watching, whether you're speaking, whether you're listening, whether you're on the job, whether you're at recreation, whether you're at rest, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And sometimes I think that we've interpreted that to mean, well, I can only worship God in the context of a worship service. No, listen, folks. All of life is a worship service when you think about it. The way you relate to your spouse is an opportunity for worship. The way that you relax in your home, the way that you interact with your neighbors, the way that you reach out to people, the way that you go about your tasks... Whether you're in the banking industry, whether you're a carpenter by trade, a stay-at-home mom, 
the school teacher, the administrative assistant, an office manager, a pastor. You think about it. It's an opportunity for you to worship God in the details of what you do day in and day out, all for his glory. And you know, that really puts a spring in my step when I think about it. (laughs) My life has been infused with meaning and purpose, all because of this wonderful truth, the image of God. Now, we'll sort of wrap that up, and we'll pick this up next week, and we'll look at where there have been departures, radical departures in society. This is where we really begin to look at some of the issues and, and why an understanding of what it means to be made in the image of God, why that's really key to our discussion. And really, as we try to engage people who, again, they're on the opposite side of the issue, maybe advocating for the transgender movement or same-sex marriage or whatever else that's a departure from God's good design. You know, Jesus said something. He said that wisdom is justified by our children. And you look at what God's design, where there's been an understanding and an acceptance, a belief and a submission to this, wherever that Judeo-Christian understanding has gone, it's led to greater human flourishing and more prosperous societies. We've only begun to see in our own culture and context what a departure from that understanding will do in terms of civilization itself. And I'm telling you, civilization will will absolutely come unwrapped at the seams and apart at the seams where God's design is completely rejected and man's own ideas are elevated in its place. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. I'm so thankful, Lord, for this profound yet simple truth that we see expressed in the opening verses of the Bible. Lord, to be able to say with confidence that man and woman have been, we've been created in the image of God and therefore there's purpose and there's meaning and there's dignity behind our existence. And Lord, we know that there's been a departure because of sin and what happens in Genesis chapter 3 is Adam and Eve go their own way, being deceived, And all of creation itself now, Lord, is groaning as the results of sin have been so devastating. But Lord, thank you for the gospel and for the wonderful truth that you've come to reclaim that which was lost and forfeited in Adam through the success of your own son and his sacrifice and his resurrection. And now as those who've come to faith in him, Lord, we trust that we're being renewed day by day according to the image of Christ And you're making us and remaking us, shaping us, conforming us into that image. And so, Lord, do whatever it takes in my life to conform me to the image of your son, Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen Amen. and amen. God bless you, men and women.